seated. Good morning, Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well. Kids, you can be released. And before we jump in this morning, just a quick reminder that next Sunday we are doing our monthly family potluck. And because we're entering into November, it's going to have a Thanksgiving theme. And so Candy and her team are making turkeys for us. And so we want to encourage you to bring your favorite Thanksgiving side dish. So that's going to be next Sunday after the the service. Bring a side dish and we're going to have lunch together after the service. So if you will, turn with me to the book of Joel. This is going to be found after Hosea, before Amos, and we've been going through the minor prophets, these small books that can often be overlooked and misunderstood in the Old Testament. We've been looking at one book each week, and this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Joel. And I want to begin by asking this question What do you believe about God when the pain of life returns? When it returns. Like, imagine you're walking through this extremely difficult time in your life when everything that you knew, everything you dreamed of, everything that you thought was going to be is now broken. And you're there in the rubble of your life, hands being stripped bare, empty before God, and you cry out, and He listens, and He hears your cry, and you begin to put those broken pieces of life back together. And it's not how you thought it was going to be, it's not how you imagined it, but something new is now being formed. And then tragedy strikes again, even of the broken pieces, when the pain of life returns. What do you believe about God? Because this was the situation for the original audience. For those who were receiving the book of Joel, you have to understand this was their context. See, 60 years ago, the Babylonians came in. They took them into captivity, destroyed their homes, destroyed the city, leveled it to the ground. The temple devastated Everything was laid siege. They were taken into captivity, into exile in Babylon. And now they've been back in the land. They cried out to God. He heard them. And now they're back trying to put their lives back together. It's been 10, 15 years picking up the pieces of their home, of the wall, of the the city and the temple, and trying to put it all back together. And then locusts come and consume everything. And again, hands stripped bare, empty. What do you believe about God in that moment? And how will you respond? This is the book of Joel. This is who he's writing to. And I want us to to walk through this book together, to not just understand the structure, to not just understand the, the breakdown in some academic sense. I want us to understand the heart of what the prophet Joel is speaking to his people. Look at verse 2. We're going to begin there because in verse 12, and you'll see it up on the the screen, that the reality of where this is leading is joy has dried up. Have you been there? Like joy on the vine is done. It has been sucked dry. It is no more. Human joy is gone. And there's several verbs that kind of lead up to this conclusion. 
that we see. In verse 2, it's, hear this, you elders, listen. It's like, let your ears be open because you hear the, the deafening roar of the pain. Has anything like this ever happened to all you inhabitants of the land? See, this isn't just to one individual. This isn't like one person is having a really bad season in life. This is a national crisis. This is more than an individual, more than a family. This is on a much greater scale. And it's like, hear this, listen, and then tell it. Tell it to your children, to your children's children, to your, to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren. This is like nothing we have ever seen. They've just been taken into exile. And it's saying this is like nothing they have ever seen. And we see the devastation in verses 3 and 4. Like, this is bad. Everything is gone. The locusts have eaten everything. And there's actually four adjectives. If it's like, hey, what kind of locust were these? How bad was it? Was this just like cicadas from up north where they're just loud and annoying? But no, they consumed everything. They were devouring locusts, swarming locusts, young locusts, destroying locusts. It's like, do you hear this? Again and again, it is emphasizing the reality of the situation. Hands emptied. In verse 6, or sorry, in verse 5, you can't hide from it. It's wake up. You, you try to distract yourself. You try to distract yourself with entertainment. You try to distract yourself with, with alcohol, with sweet wine to just numb the pain, and then I won't feel it so bad, but then the, the, the sweet wine is taken away. Wake up. There's this reality of the pain is real. It can't be covered. It's too deep to soothe on our own. In verse 6, for a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number, and its teeth are like a nation. Its teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. And then you're like, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about insects here. Are we talking about insects or armies? Are we talking about locusts or are we talking about nations coming in? And here's the problem with Joel. When you read through it, there's as many interpretations as there are people. And you're like, is this talking about real locusts? Is this talking about a present like issue? Is this talking about a future issue? Is this talking about something that even for us is still in the future? And the reality is, as I agree with most scholars, that would say there is a present pain happening in Israel that were insects, locusts. And that was a window to something that was bigger. There is a present problem and there is a present comfort being offered to the people of Israel. But it was also pointing to something future and bigger, a problem of pain that we all feel that's beyond just locusts, that continues to reverberate throughout history today to where we feel it in our lives. It may not be insects and locusts consuming, but we still feel the problem of pain and the comfort that is being offered to Israel at the time is a comfort that is still present today. There is something historical happen and there is something future being promised. But it's calling us to grieve that which is broken. In verse 8, grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for the husband of her youth. That this brokenness, this grief, that too often what can happen in our life is we become jaded, callous to the brokenness and sin of our world. It just becomes normal. 
and we don't feel it anymore, that there's real brokenness, there's real hurt, there's real pain, and we can't just cover it up with drink. We can't just cover it up by ignoring it. We are woken up to the intensity of the pain, and God calls us to grieve it, to feel it. The grain and drink offerings, they're cut off. The fields are destroyed. It's as though the land itself weeps, it goes on to say. The wine, vines have withered. Wheat and barley are consumed. It goes on to say the fig tree, the pomegranate, the, the date palm, the apple trees, they've all withered. What remains? My hands are empty. I've taken the broken pieces that were left and I've tried to rebuild a life and once again they're all stripped away. What now, God? Who is God in the midst of our suffering? And that's where it leads us into verse 12. Indeed, human joy has dried up. Because see, we've defined joy in the past. If you remember, a godly joy is the resolute assurance that God is present in our pain and he is, he is powerful to deal with our problems. That's a godly joy, but a human joy. When you look up what it means, it's just a feeling of pleasure and happiness and there's no more of that. That's dried up, that's gone. And then the invitation in this place with our hands empty before God He's going to say, check your heart. Really, like, check your heart before God in those moments of suffering. When you want to put the blame out there, when you're asking questions, it's going to say, check your own heart. Lament. Grieve. In, in one thirteen, dress in sackcloth and lament. You priest, wail, you ministers of the altar. Pastors, lead your congregations in lament. When the brokenness of sin in life is on display among us. Don't shy away. Don't hide from it. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. Because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. And then it says in 2.12, jumping ahead, turn to me with all your heart. Turn to me with all your heart when you're suffering, when you're broken, when, when you've tried to put your life back together. It's turn to me. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. It's like deny yourself physically is the fasting, most often in regards to food. Deny yourself the hunger of your own flesh so that your spirit begins to hunger for God. Return to him. Weep and mourn. Do you grieve the brokenness of sin in our world? Do you grieve the reality of our suffering and the ways we have experienced and caused brokenness around us? Weep and mourn. And use this as an opportunity to turn to him with all your heart. Because here's what I found. Sometimes the pain that God allows in our life is his mercy on display to draw us back to him. This is a hard truth. Sometimes the pain 
that God allows in your life is his mercy on display, not his cruelty, to draw your heart back to him. I've seen it. And it's something we never wish hardship on someone. We never wish suffering for someone to walk through the fire. But I've seen God's grace in it. And I've seen people come and fall on their knees when they come to a tangible understanding of their own, the reality of their desperation for God. But sometimes what happens, and this is what we're going to see, I believe, in in the people of Israel at this time, is I've also seen people come to the end of of themselves, have people come in here, and, and for a season, what happens is they've gone through a very difficult thing. Right? And, and all of a sudden, they, they want their life to be better. So I'm going to go to church and I'm going to do the right thing. And, and that's going to make my life better. And, and, and the momentary suffering causes them a dependence upon God. But as soon as the comfort returns, they quickly forget their desperation for God and return to a godless worldview and lifestyle. Because comfort led to complacency. And they only cried out for God to fix the problem, but not for God himself. And this is why I believe not only does verse 12 call us to turn to me with all your heart, but look at then verse 13. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. Rend your clothes Rend your hearts. Because see, what was normal, what would happen is that as an outward expression of an inward agony of returning to God, of repentance, they would tear their clothes to show and demonstrate the reality of their need and brokenness for God. But it was supposed to be this outward demonstration of something that was happening inwardly. But what it turned into is tear the clothes so you think I'm repenting. But in reality, my heart remains obstinate against God. And so we go through these outward forms of repentance. Oh, maybe I'll go to church. I'll even join a community group. Let me do the right thing so this pain subsides. But as soon as it does... The heart is left unchanged. It's the question that each and every one of us should be asking ourselves this morning. Why am I here? Like, are you here to get brownie points from God? Is he proud of you because you're here and now you get some points in your favor? So as you go on about your week, maybe it'll go in your favor. Or are you here... Because God is holy and he's worthy regardless of my circumstances outside that door. He alone is worthy and I will surrender my life to him. I will tear my heart before him and give him my whole heart. Or are you just going through the motions of tearing your clothes and your heart is left unchanged? That's a hard one, right? Because if you're like me, what happens is then when something bad goes, but God, I've... And then all of a sudden we realize we thought we were earning points. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. 
Who is God in our suffering? Think about this for a moment. Who is he? It's an important question in one that we need to actually think about. Because it's going to say, return to the Lord in verse 13, for he is. If you're highlighting or circle it, for he is. Because who is God in our suffering? I think too often we think God cruel. We think him unkind, impatient. It's the misunderstanding of much of the minor prophets as if the conclusion should simply be, you're a terrible person, repent because I can't stand you, I'm angry and annoyed with you and I'm going to punish you, but if you're good, then maybe I'll, I'll relent. You could read the minor prophets and walk away with that conclusion, though it is completely wrong. Who is God? Because what I have found and what I have heard from, from some is that they, that they come to church and they're like, every, every Sunday I come and then I just hear how bad I am. Really? Is that the, the truth? Or is it how good God is? What are you hearing What is your perception of God? Do you walk away with this image of God as just being cruel, short-tempered, impatient with you? Who is God in the midst of your suffering? And what we don't need is some fluffy pop culture pastor telling us you're fine just the way you are because that's the, the result of going against this false view of God that just shows him as cruel and impatient. Well, then no, you're fine. Everything's great. Don't worry about it. What is true and biblical that we can hold on to, to hold fast in the midst of suffering? Because I don't need just sayings that you're going to put on a mug. I don't need verses out of context. I need something true that's a foundation beneath my feet when the suffering is real. That's what I want. That's what I need. So who is he? And this is where it tells us who he is in the midst of our suffering. He is gracious. He is not cruel with intentions toward you. I picked the word cruel because I had to look it up. What's the antonym? What's the opposite of gracious? And one of the examples was cruel, as if God takes pleasure in your pain. That is not true. He does not take pleasure in your pain. He is gracious. And it literally means that God is favorable toward you when it's unexpected and undeserved. That's the caveat in Hebrew. God is gracious in unexpected ways. He is favorable toward you in unexpected and undeserved ways. That is what is true to those who are suffering, who are hurting, who feels like your hands have been stripped bare. It is a lie that Satan wants to put in your head that tells you that, that God is cruel toward you or takes pleasure in your pain. He is gracious. He is compassionate. 
merciful, tender care. Rasham is the Hebrew word. What was interesting in my study this week is it's closely associated with the word womb. It's almost this picture of imagine a pregnant mother, long with child, in the way that, that you've seen them, like kind of like the way I saw my wife, like put the arms around the belly as it grew, almost protecting the care, the mercy, the tenderness. That's compassion that God has toward you. This is the image of what the word means. It is a tender and merciful care in the midst of your suffering. Slow to anger. It literally means long before it gets to anger. It's like the opposite of short-tempered. It's as, as if the runway is long before God's anger takes off. He is slow to anger. But we get this notion in our mind, he's cruel, he's short-tempered, he's uncaring, he takes pleasure in crushing people, that, that he's limiting, he's, he doesn't care. But that's not the picture this is saying. It's like return to God because this is who he is. Return to him because he is abounding in faithful love. Abounding in faithful love. This abundance, it literally means like this heavy weightedness. Have you ever felt that in your heart? So much joy, so much love for someone else that you actually feel the heaviness in your own heart? Like at first it was with my wife and then our, our kids as they were born and adopted. And now if you see me after the service, when my granddaughter back there begins to run toward me and her arms are out and she's starting to say pop, pop. And I don't know if she knows that's me or she just likes saying it, but I think it's about me, right? That moment, I've dreamt of that moment. And after the service, when it begins to happen and I see her running towards me, it's like I get a glimpse, just a taste of the abounding love of God. A faithful love literally means a promise, a covenant love. It's a love that, that doesn't falter. It's a love that doesn't fail. It, it, it's a love that stands the storm. It stands my failures because God in his infinite holiness and wisdom has chosen to love me and I've done nothing to deserve it and I can't do anything to lose it. He is compassionate and merciful. This is who God is. And then it says he relents from punishment. There's something I want us to see here. God punishes evil. And, and we cannot lose sight of that. Do not mistake the character of God in his compassion, in his mercy, in his love for approval or indifference toward evil. God, in his infinite goodness, will and does punish evil. And if there's any doubt of that, simply read the 11 verses that precede 12 and 13. 
And you're going to see, let all the residents of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom and cloud of clouds and total darkness. Like the dawn spreading over the mountains. A great and strong people appear such as never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generations to come. A fire devours in front of them and behind them a flame blazes. The land in front of them is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them it is like a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. Their appearance is like that of horses, and they gallop like war horses. They bound on the tops of the mountains. Their sound is like the sound of chariots, like the sound of fiery flames consuming stubble, like a mighty army deployed for war. Nations writhe in horror before them. All faces turn pale. They attack as warriors attack. They scale walls as men of war do. Each goes to his own path. You're like, oh, that preceded what we just read? (laughs) That doesn't sound as warm and fuzzy, does it? The reality is this. God punishes evil. He does and he will. But when we turn to the Lord... He also relents from punishment. This is the hope of finding shelter in his arms. It is not just that everything is okay, that you're fine just the way you are. We are not fine just the way we are. That's why he calls us to return to him, to turn from our brokenness, to turn from the punishment that is sure to engulf us all and find safety and security in the one in whom he provided, Jesus Christ. Find shelter in his arms, in his sacrifice. That is the invitation. And as it goes on to say in 2.14, who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Here's the thing. Why do we repent? Why do we turn to God? The danger is this. We go through the motions of repentance to get what we want, which is for all of our problems to go away, for all the suffering to stop. Like maybe if I do these things, maybe if I repent, then God will make things better. But that's not why we repent. We repent not to get comfort, but to get God. He is the greatest good. He is the one to whom we are returning to because of who he is, because he is gracious, because he is compassionate, because he is abounding in faithful love. That is greater than whatever problems, whatever difficulties you might walk through. And maybe when you turn to him, who knows? Maybe those problems go away and maybe they don't. That is not the promise. The promise is that this God who is gracious and kind will be with you and that is all you need. That is the promise. And we see then what he does. We see what's asked of us when we say, what does God do? We see who he is, but what does he do? And it's like, look, keep your eyes open. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of the questions, in the midst of the doubts, keep your eyes open. Because the Lord answered his people in verse 19, look, I'm about to send you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. It's look, 
Look, lift up your eyes, but beyond the devastation, beyond the doubts, and look, God is at work in ways that you may not see or understand. He's at work. So when you're going through the suffering, when you're going through the storm, when you can't see it, trust in who God declares himself to be and keep watching because he is working and he is kind. The grieving will turn to rejoicing. Because he is not cruel, he is kind. So as it says in 2.21, do not be afraid, land. Rejoice and be glad. In 22, do not be afraid, wild animals. In 23, children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God. Because God is at work. There's something here I want us to close in. This morning. It's the reality of Joel. Like two weeks ago, when I was preaching through Habakkuk, I talked about how in those final verses, in 3 17 and 18 of Habakkuk, when it says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stall. It's saying when everything falls apart, when everything's broken, when everything seems lost, when every last bit is taken from my hands, then it says, yet, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And I shared how there was a season in my life when all I knew was the reality of these words. When it felt like, unfortunately, these verses had become my life verse, like these aren't the life verses you want. When everything fails, when everything falls apart, when all my plans don't come true, when all my efforts turn to nothing, when everything I touch seems to fail, yet I'll praise the Lord. But for years, this is where I was. I remember those moments and what happened and what I didn't share then and I want to connect now is that in the midst of that, when all I held was this truth in isolation from the rest of Scripture, it led me to a spiritual pessimism. When all I could see was the suffering, when all I could see was the problem, and then God became sovereign, but he was no longer good, at least not good to me. I perceived him to be cruel and unkind, as if I was merely a pawn in his cosmic chessboard of life. Just to be spent, it will only be bad. I'll die and go be with Jesus, praise him. He's worthy, yet I will praise the Lord. There is a sweet truth that we need to hold on to in these words, but held in isolation, it led me to a spiritual fatalism. And I held on to that for a long time. It's these seasons of life that feel like winter, but not the good kind of winter. It reminds me of like C.S. Lewis and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's always winter, but never Christmas. 
It's that kind of spiritual season. If you've ever walked through it, you know what I mean. That's where I was. And there was this truth that I held on to that is good and beautiful, but it led my heart to fatalism. And then in God's providence, I don't remember how, he brought to both my wife and I, Joel 2, verses 25 and 27. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, those young locusts, the devouring locusts, the destroying locusts, my great army that I sent against you, that God was sovereign over it. He was sovereign over my suffering. He had sent it. He allowed it. And, but you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Really? He has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. It was moving from death to life, from loss to plenty, from suffering to comfort. And it was this reality of what I had to begin to hold and what I would encourage of each of you this morning is when you are going through suffering, when you find yourself at that, this place, how do you view God? When you are walking through the pain of life again, hold both of these truths one in each hand, not in separation from one another, but together. That will guide your heart. Because in Joel, in, in Habakkuk 3, I hold that, that whatever happens, whatever good, whatever bad, when I go through loss, when I go through suffering, I will lift my eyes and yet I will praise his name. Because he is greater than my suffering. He is greater than my loss. And I will hold on to this. And though everything seems to fall apart, yet I will praise him. And I will hold that as true and firm. And in the other hand, I will hold the reality that he is gracious and kind. That he is compassionate and abounding in faithful love to me. That he will restore what is lost and broken because he is a good God. He is sovereign and he is powerful and he is worthy of our praise and he is kind and he is good and he is gracious. And I am telling you, when you walk through the fire, it will be a struggle to hold both of these truths. But this is the greatest encouragement I can give you. That this is the heart I believe in the message of Joel. That in suffering... Our spiritual senses are both heightened and sometimes overwhelmed to see our need but to grow weak to them, to keep our eyes open when what we see is only pain and to fight to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and yes, he is good and gracious and restore what is lost and broken. Let's pray.